hear you singing each week. You know, there are times during some of the songs I just stop singing and listen. So I can enter into your joy of singing and just hear the joy of the Lord that is around us. Paul commands us to speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and we, we preach the gospel to one another through song. And so it's a joy to hear you singing the praise of the Lord. An old farmer frequently described his Christian experience by saying, well, I'm not making much progress, but I'm well established. He used that saying to justify the stagnant status of his spiritual life and his frequent falling into sin of various sorts. And one spring he was out hauling some logs and his wagon wheels sank down deep into the mud all the way up to the axles. And try as he would, he couldn't get the wagon out. Defeated, he sat there atop the logs viewing the situation and soon a neighbor who had always felt somewhat uncomfortable with his complacent spiritual attitude came along and greeted him. Well, Brother Jones, I see you're not making much progress, but you must be happy because you're well established. And I wonder how often we're prone to make excuses for a lack of growth in the Christian life, hiding behind excuses when the real problem just may be we're stuck in the mud from our own decisions and choices. For several chapters in the Gospel according to Matthew, Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom of heaven. He's warned those who have heard him, who have seen him, not to harden their hearts and not to just stick to the old ways that they had learned from the scribes and the Pharisees, but to learn the new ways that have been brought in with the Gospel. We've seen that he has confronted the religious leaders who do not believe that he's the Messiah. But Jesus enforces the truth, as we saw last week, that his true family is found in those who follow him above all else, who give him their highest allegiance, who give him obedience. Jesus came to build the church. And as he reminded us last week, our highest allegiance is to be to our first family, which is those who are citizens in the kingdom of heaven. Only such are the true followers of Jesus we see again and again throughout the Gospel of Matthew. They're the ones who hear the message, who receive it, who believe it, who grow in obedience to the Word of God, the ones who show that they belong as their lives are producing a spiritual harvest manifested by the fruit of the Spirit. Well, as we get to chapter 13, Jesus is going to speak further about the nature of the kingdom of heaven, about what he is doing and the truth of that kingdom and the lifestyle that shows from one who has truly been touched by the Spirit of God. So we're going to take several weeks, actually, to go over the different parables in Matthew 13. And as we do so, we ask the Lord, as we always do, to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to embrace the truth, wills that bend to the truth and beauty of God's Word. And so as we prepare, then, to get into the first parable in Matthew chapter 13. In honor of God and his holy word, I invite you to stand as we read the passage we will consider this morning. I will be reading from Matthew 13, 1 to 9, and then drop down to verses 18 to 23. And the living and inspired word of God says that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. 
And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on a good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one come and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. This is the word of the Lord. Let us receive it for its intended blessing. Please be seated. And let us pray. Fathers, you have given us this word now. We thank you that it is a precious gift from your Holy Spirit. And we as your people now, as we sit under its authority, want to hear your voice through this word. So would you speak to us now? Would you give understanding as only your Holy Spirit can give to open eyes and ears, to soften hearts and minds that we might know that we've heard from the living God? And as we leave this place this morning, we cannot be the same that we came in because we've heard from the living one who sees the beginning from the end. We turn to you now and ask for your hand of favor in Jesus' name. Amen. We've seen that Matthew organizes his material that he has in the life of Jesus according to the themes that he wants to present to the Jewish people of his day. Now what he has written is for all of us. But he had an initial audience in mind as he was crafting this gospel under the uh, inspiration and power of God, the Holy Spirit. Over the past couple of chapters, we saw that there was growing opposition to the ministry of Jesus. And now as we get to chapter 13, he's going to give us a whole series of parables showing the importance of the messianic message of Jesus. He will show the effect that these parables, are the, the truth has on those who hear it and the different types of hearts that will listen. He will show the effect that truth has on a person who embraces it. We'll see the great value of the gospel of the one who finds it. Parables are one of the tools that Jesus uses to show the divine guidance and governance of God, both to reveal truth and to hide it. In fact, in our time in Matthew 13, twice Jesus is going to bring up the subject of the purpose of parables, that saying it's intended in part to reveal knowledge and wisdom and to hide it. 
And so this will prove to be an interesting study as we walk through chapter 13 together. So I hope by now you have your sermon outlines ready as we, we want to get into this text together as we look at our first major point this morning, which is the setting. Now I would like to give a greeting and a good morning to those of you joining us online. Thank you for being with us. We're glad that through technology we can be together. I pray and hope that wherever you are that God is teaching you through his word. And I pray that you have your Bible open to Matthew 13 as we study together. Our first point, the setting. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. For some time, we've seen that Jesus has been in the house dealing with the religious leaders and with those who were inside with him. And finally, he moves from there to the water's edge. This would be, of course, the Sea of Galilee. He's still in the area of Galilee. Now, we know that there's just something refreshing about water. And Jesus was, after all, truly man. And so we can understand that at times he perhaps wanted to just get out and enjoy the beauty of creation. And he would look forward to having times of rest and relaxation and refreshment. We see symbols and hints of that throughout the Gospels. But those moments were rare. And even here, he would not be able to get away from the crowd. The acts of power that he has performed, the words of power that he has preached, will continue to draw attention. So we see that those that were with him in the house went out with him, and those that had, were around the house all gathered down by the shore. And we see the crowd got so large that he could not be seen and heard by all. And you can also imagine as the, the crowd is moving in closer and closer, they're moving him closer and closer to the water's edge. And so we're told he gets into a boat and he moves out into the waterways and sat down. This is no random detail. In the Jewish world, when it was time to teach, it, the rabbi sat down. And you notice he's the one that sat down and everyone else stood around and listened. My, how far we have come. But this was the teaching time for Jesus. He would teach them and the crowds would gather around. Now, there's a practical note to this. He could address more people and he, his voice would carry over the water. If ever you've been near water's edge, you can hear a conversation that goes on. My parents had a retirement home on a, a home in, on a lake in central Minnesota. It was two and a half miles to the other side of the lake. We could understand the conversation that was going on on the other side if they raised their voices a little too much. So water would be magnified, or the voice would be magnified across the water. And there were these natural coastlines along the Sea of Galilee that would form natural amphitheaters, if you will. In fact, there's even a place today that is referred to as the Cove of the Parables. And so Jesus begins to teach. And here in Matthew 13, we have the third major discourse that Jesus is giving in the Gospel according to Matthew. The first one is found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. The second one was in Matthew 10, when Jesus is preparing to send out his first uh, his, his missionaries, his, his apostles on their first missionary journey. And now we get to the third major discourse or teaching of Jesus in Matthew. And he told them many things in parables. Now this is the first of at least two times in Matthew we're told that Jesus is going to teach about the kingdom of God through the use of parables. What's interesting in Matthew is that this is actually the first time that the word parabole in the original language is used. 
It comes from the word para, to throw alongside. Think of a term like paralegal, someone who comes alongside, or parachurch, comes alongside the church. Where here you have para, it comes alongside, and balo was the word for thrown. So a parable is something that is set alongside, in this case, a body of teaching. A parable in and of itself can have different forms. It can be a riddle, a story, a proverb, a simile, or a play on words. And now this is the first time that the word parabole is used in Matthew. We actually see other examples of parables already before this in the first 12 chapters. Now the purpose of parables is to get us to think. To get us to think and to ponder so that we might understand their deeper and true meaning. They reveal the level to which people are in tune or not with the Spirit of God and with His truths. As Dr. Daniel Doriani a pastor and theologian in the St. Louis area says, parables are powerful teaching tools, but a measure of commitment is needed if one is to follow them. So parables serve as sort of a test. They function to see the different ways that people respond to the preaching of the Word of God. And so the first one that we look at today involves how people will respond to the messianic message of Jesus, to the preaching of the word of God. And in fact, Jesus is answering a question, why have not the Jewish people responded positively to the message of Jesus? Why have the religious leaders and most of the Jews, having seen the works, having heard the words, why are they still rejecting him? We see in the gospel so far they marvel at him. We see they're amazed at him. They're attracted to his miracles. They admire him. But very few of them actually genuinely follow him. Why not? And so we're going to see a similar question here that it responded to. And Paul, later on in his ministry, will pick up the same question. Why are the Jewish people not responding to the message of the gospel? And so we have one explanation here in Matthew 13. It's not only there to answer that question, it's also to challenge our own hearts. How do we respond when we hear the word of God? Now, as we move through Matthew 13, we will see that it is Jesus who is the grand sower. That the seed is the word of God. The soils represent the hearts of those listening to the word. And it's clear then that the power is in the spirit of God who gives the word, which is the word of God, and not so much in the preaching itself. It is the spirit who gives the word. It is the spirit who raises up the preacher. It is the spirit who prepares the hearts of the listeners. So Jesus has told them many things. It would be fun to know what the summary was of how long he'd been teaching and what he was teaching them about, what subject matters he addressed. But he was teaching them many things in parables. So his discourse went on for some time. And there are a number of parables that we will look at in the coming weeks in this chapter. So we get to the first parable. A sower went out to sow. Now it's interesting that the same word for what the sower does here is what was used of Jesus in 13. Just as Jesus went out from the house, it's the same word in Greek, so the sower went out to sow. In those days, a man would take a bag of seed, walk around the fields, and just tossing it by hand, all scattered all throughout the fields. They didn't have heavy equipment like we might have today to efficiently sow seed in neatly prepared fields. Farming techniques were quite different then. In fact, in many places, they would actually sow the seed first, 
and then they would go through and plow the fields in lines to turn the seeds under the soil. And that's probably what Jesus is referring to here. This is how the seed would have been sown and planted in those days. And so as we look at the setting, we have four types of soil and four types of responses to the seed. They represent four types of hearts. And so as you follow along in your sermon outline, as we move through this text, we get to the first heart, which is the calcified heart. The calcified heart. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. So this first heart that we see is one that is stony hard, solid. As the seed is sown, we are told, some of it falls on the path. Now the history behind that is, Fields back then were not fenced off like we might see today. They were not neatly delineated like we might find in many of our fields today. And so it was common for people to walk across the fields. That was the shortcut, going across the fields. And as people would continually walk across those shortcuts, they would harden the dirt that was underneath, and it would become hard. And seed that would fall on that path had no chance of being rooted in the soil. It would just sit there on top. Thus, it would be easy for the birds as they're flying over to swoop down and have breakfast as they scooped up the seed that was there. This soil refers to those with hardened hearts. In biblical language, they have hearts of stone. The seed of God's word just bounces off their hearts, just like seed bounces off of stony ground. And as a result, they are fruitless. So Jesus himself gives the interpretation. That's why I've read these two passages this morning. And now I invite you to drop down to verse 18, where we pay attention to Jesus' words. He says, hear then the parable of the sower. Now next week we will look at what's taking place in between these two passages. But because Jesus gives the parable and the explanation, it seems good to bring them together. Next week as we look at in between, he will give the purpose of parables. And then he turns to the disciples to whom he has explained the purposes of the parable. And he says this, hear then the parable of the sower. What's interesting is that the emphasis in the original language is on you. You listen. All of you that have been with me since the beginning, you who are my disciples, you listen because I'm going to reveal to you the truth that has been hidden. You have believed in me, and I will give you more understanding. Pay attention. So this affirms the theme that the parables are used to reveal things to those who are with Christ, but to hide them from those who are not. And so Jesus goes on and says, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in the heart. This is what was sown along the path. It's clear that the word of the kingdom is the gospel that has been preached. It's the message that with Jesus, the kingdom of heaven has come. He's showing it in power. He's showing it in word. He's showing it in truth. He's showing that he is the fulfillment of all that had come before him. And that this message of the kingdom, with Jesus as the king, of those who repent and believe, enter into that kingdom. And Jesus is the one who rules over their hearts and reigns over their lives. He who has ears, let him hear. But those who are not in Christ have hardened hearts. And in the scriptures, hardness of heart is a metaphor for man's sinful and fallen condition. We know that man by nature 
is hostile to God and opposition to God. He's lost in sin and dead in his trespasses and sins. And so Satan, who is the evil one here, does not want the seed that's just lying on top of the ground to potentially be implanted, so he plucks it up right away. This group of people may have the preaching of the word bounce off of their auditory receptors, in other words, their ears, but it does not penetrate into their hearts. They reject it out of hand. Those who have hardness of heart hear, but do not understand. They see, but they do not perceive. The path of their heart is hardened so that they are not able to hear or see, and they quickly reject the gospel. As Charles Spurgeon says, if truth does not enter the heart, evil influences soon remove it. We know, of course, that the evil one is limited. He is created, but he is a hard worker trying to impede and block the work of God. So like the bird, he wants to swoop in and, and take up the seed. So the solution to the stony heart is a heart operation by the Spirit of God, whereby the heart of stone is removed and the heart of flesh is brought in where the seed can fall into that good soil and grow. First, we see the calcified heart. Second type of soil is the careless heart. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. This type of heart is superficial. Some of the seed fell on rocky soil. Didn't have a lot of ground or dirt to work with. In the land of Palestine, the soil quality was simply uneven. And there were many places where the fields had just a very shallow level of soil on top of the limestone or other bedrock. And so the seed would fall into the ground. It would spring up quickly, perhaps because of the shallowness of the soil, would be quickly warmed by the sun and it would sprout. But it had no depth. Therefore, because of the heat and lack of water, it would quickly die and wither. Notice that Jesus said, when the sun rose, not if. It's a reminder that there will be troubles and temptations and tests that will come to all. And this type of heart then, because it's superficial, is feckless. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away we need to take heed to what jesus is saying here because these are words that could be scandalous since we understand what jesus is saying it is possible for people to have an emotional response to the word of god it is possible for people to hear the word of god have some type of confession and respond but have little to no understanding of what they're actually doing it's superficial it has no understanding. It is possible for people to respond to the word of God at some level, even with great joy, but not have it take root. Now, in our days, we, we see it as a common practice to have large group evangelism events where we have crusades and preachers, and we have an altar call, and we have choirs, and we have all of these different types of things. That was not known in most of the history of the church. That is of relatively recent vintage. 
And we need to be careful how we view those things. We all know that through the use of music, through the use of certain chords, you can manipulate a response. Through the use of emotion or lighting or smoke or drums or whatever, you can elicit an emotional response from someone that doesn't actually change their will or actually change their heart. It is possible that someone can even have some type of response with great joy and, and go forward or raise a hand or say a prayer or fill out a card like they have some type of initial interest, but very quickly becomes apparent that there was no spiritual life there. And so we want to rejoice that there is preaching in the gospel and in the reaction that it brings, but we should know enough about the gospels to know that there are many reactions of faith that are spurious. They are short-lived. They are not rooted in truth. And as soon as difficulty comes, off they go. They don't want inconvenience. They don't want commands. They don't want restrictions. They don't want expectations. And it might be that the gospel simply was not properly preached. Perhaps all the person wanted was some type of fire insurance. Perhaps all they wanted was a get-out-of-hell-free card. But the gospel is Jesus commands people to follow him. And when he calls people to follow him, he bids them come and die. Die to their current way of living. Die to their current way of thinking. And to take on a new way of life and continue on with him. Because God finishes what he starts. What he begins, he will carry on to fruition until the day of Christ Jesus. God has no stillbirth. He only has new birth in the Spirit of God. And all that he saves, he will hang on to, he will preserve, so that they will persevere until the end. And even the early church warned against false confessions of faith. Listen to what the Apostle John wrote to the church. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. It's very easy to manipulate emotions. It's very easy to stir up enthusiasm. Have you been to a rock concert? Have you been to a football game? With a song, you can stir the emotions of the entire crowd and bring about no spiritual effect whatsoever. That is happening from something that is external and not internal. When we preach the gospel to people, we preach the reality of sin. We preach the reality of judgment, the reality of the holiness of God, and the necessity of repentance and faith in Christ, who has said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And we need to preach that persecutions and troubles are promised for those who will follow Christ. That needs to be preached because that's the gospel. Preachers of prosperity, preachers of health, preachers of the bed of ease in Zion will face a severe judgment before God because they promise things like health and wealth and power and success. And it's possible that none of those things will happen if you follow Christ. In fact, your life may get more difficult because now you're living for the Holy One in an unholy world. There are rewards for following Christ. Rich, intimate fellowship with God the Father through His Spirit. Forgiveness of sins. The promise of peace and the presence of God that goes with us forever. But that far surpasses 
to mere pleasures and treasures of this world. And the word that Jesus uses here, falls away, is actually the word skandalizo. Do you hear a certain word in there? To scandalize. It means to, to offend or to cause offense. When troubles come, the careless heart says, hey, I didn't ask for this. I just came for the entertainment. I just came for the good music. I just came for the easy believism. And they take off. We need to remind ourselves of what the nature of the gospel is. That it is not just the profession of faith that saves. It is the possession of faith that saves. When you ask people, are you sure you are saved or not? What is it that they're putting their faith in? Because Jesus says very clearly in Matthew 7, not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. The life that is in Christ will reveal itself. There will be fruit. It's not enough for us to put our faith in a decision that we have made. But it must be repentance and belief in Christ, who alone is the sin bearer, who can save us from our sins and can justify us before a holy God. Jesus saves. Jesus alone saves. Faith alone and Jesus alone saves. But faith alone and Jesus alone saves, but not by a faith that is alone. It will produce fruit. It will produce a harvest of righteousness. Beware the careless heart. The third soil is the compromised heart. The compromised heart. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew and choked them. This heart is suffocated. Some fell among the thorns, which would compete for sun and water with these seeds. Thorns are resilient. Thorns are tough. Thorns are native to their soil, and they're not going to give up ground easily. And anyone who has ever tried to plant a garden knows the truth of that. Thorns are competitive. And as the good seed tries to grow in the midst of great struggle, they're overrun by the thorns who give little or no room for any new type of plant to take root. So this type of heart then is futile. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Once again, Jesus is warning about the priorities that we have. As he said last week, our priorities must be oriented towards the kingdom of heaven, that we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that all other things are given to us, that he is calling us to follow him faithfully. And what are our priorities as we go about life? This seed is the heart that may hear the word and may even want to embrace it, but the things of the world prove too attractive too powerful, too alluring, too pleasurable to keep us focused and growing on the things of the Lord, and therefore they get choked out. We're warned in many places about not having a love for the world and the things of the world, to spend more time in our fear of man and our fear of God and our reverence for God instead of our fear of man, to not let the lure of riches draw us away from righteous desires. Think of the rich young ruler. He had it all, and he came to Christ, and Christ knew what it was he had to give up, and he
and he wouldn't. The riches of the world, the deceitfulness of riches prove too much. My friend, sin is deceitful. Our hearts are easily deceived. That's why we need to watch out over one another. Because the fact of the matter is, like we saw a few weeks ago, and we, Jesus made clear that what we say with our lips reveals what is in our hearts. Well, the things that we truly love are the things that we serve and live for. So it's showing up in our actions. It shows up in our decisions. It shows up in our priorities of how we use our time, talent, and treasure. If our lives are full of possessions and riches and love relationships and personal gain, is there evidence that God is at work in us? Salvation is found in Christ through faith alone. This coming to Christ brings an end to our former allegiances and ways of living. It is Christ who saves. But what has a hold on your heart today? Christ will not allow any competition. It is not Christ plus riches, Christ plus power, Christ plus pleasure, Christ plus anything else. It is Christ alone. And we need to hear these words today. Because we've been doing this idea of mass evangelism now for a long time. And the statistics show that only 10% of those who have made a decision at an evangelism encounter end up as active members in a local church. What does that tell you? When Jesus bids a man come and die, come and follow me, and 90% of those who have some type of emotional response do not follow the Lord? Are there those among us who have assurance of salvation that they've actually never encountered because they're trusting in a decision, they're trusting in an emotional response, they're trusting in something that they did instead of having a heart that's been set free from sin by the Spirit of God? I think Jesus warns us here as he does in many places, beware of crowds. Crowds can be a sign of growth, but crowds can be a temptation to compromise. The crowds followed Jesus, but the majority of them left when it got difficult, left when they saw the price that had to be paid, left when they, left when they understood what it meant to follow Jesus. When they thought they were going to get a kingdom, when they thought that they were going to get liberation from the Romans, when they thought they were going to get a new way, a new power, new liberation, less taxes, then they wanted to go after Jesus. And they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then the reality came of what it meant to follow Jesus. The shame of following a man who was crucified on a cross, hanging between heaven and earth for the redemption of those he came to save. And as they realized that Jesus came to form a kingdom greater than any kingdom here on earth, their shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna quickly became crucify, crucify. Christ will abide no compromise. He is to have the preeminent place in our lives. And when a person comes to Jesus, the result will be a changed life. The result will be fruit. The result will be greater obedience even if it takes a little time. And that brings us to the last soil, which is the consecrated heart. The consecrated heart. 
point that Jesus is making so far is that these three types of soils that we just looked at and their results are of no use to the farmer and of no use to God. A fruitless life is no better than a fruitless tree. A hard-hearted heart, a hard heart, a shallow heart, a preoccupied heart. These are not new problems. That's why Jesus is dealing with them in his day. They're not unique to that period. It's what we can see in the harvest today. It's why you can say, well, so-and-so was with us for a, a period of time, and then what happened? It's the word of God that saves because it's the Holy Spirit that gives new birth. And God can speak the word of God even through those who don't follow it. One of the men that shared Christ with me seemed to be on fire for the Lord. And a few years later, when I came across him, he not only was away from the Lord, he was a dancer in a bar. Had re rejected everything that he had shared with me. But it took root in my life. And for over 40 years, I've had the joy of walking with the Lord. You see, it's the Word of God that saves. It's the Spirit of God that gives life. And Jesus says, follow me. Seek first to meet my Father and his kingdom and all these things will come. But Jesus warns about these three soils and said that, keep in mind the consistent message I've been giving all throughout Matthew. The test of a genuine believer is the fruit that is produced in his or her life. And so he gives the conclusion when he says that other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. This type of heart is spiritual. As the seed is sown, the seed fell on good soil where we're told it took root, it found good nourishment, it produced grain, it produced a harvest. It was prepared soil. The Holy Spirit had been working ahead of time. And as this heart hears the word, it received it, it believed it, it acts upon it. It's a heart that understands the message of the kingdom of heaven, embraces it, and follows the word. It's the heart that's been transformed by the Spirit of God with a newness of life, a newness of orientation of thought, a newness of conviction, a newness of priority. It's a heart that is alive, that is able to see and hear and receive. This type of heart is the one that is fruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold and another 60 and another 30. I underline that point that this is the fruitful heart. It's the only one of the four where it is said that fruit is born. There is obedience and joy whereas before there was rebellion and selfishness. There is service and help and understanding whereas before there was ignorance and pride. There is growing unity and compassion and love and submission, whereas before there was selfishness and self-centered living. This is the life that displays the fruit of the Spirit and growth in the Word of God. Yes, to be sure, growing as a Christian is a process. I understand that. But it's both of those things. It is both a process, meaning progress, and it is growth. There will be a pattern of growth over time. Now, it will depend somewhat on the amount of time we've been a believer. 
or the level of maturity that we have obtained or the level of obedience that we have shown or the level of knowledge attained from the word of God. But the point is where the spirit of God is active, there will be fruit because the Holy Spirit will be producing that fruit as we walk with Christ, obey his word. It'll happen over a lifetime. There will be growing fruitfulness and faithfulness. There will be the overcoming of sinful behavior, attitudes and opinions and thoughts. We will not be the same that we are today, that we were 10 years ago, 20 years ago or more. That's the point that Jesus is making clear here, as he does in many of the parables in Matthew. I had the privilege for many years of being an instructor in the Word in various places, even teaching people how to teach, even teaching people how to lead Sunday school. And a good principle in teaching is if they know it, they will show it. That's true for a math problem, for a reading quiz, for handling a saw, for baking a cake, for firing a gun, for growing in the Christian life. If they know it, they will show it. But what if we were to say it in the inverse? If they don't show it, they don't know it. The new birth in Christ is the work of God, the Holy Spirit. But the new growth is a result of us obeying and working in joyful, obedient partnership and cooperation with the Spirit of God. So the new birth is all of God. But the new growth that results from the birth is as we obey and follow and love and serve God, we will grow. And so we see passages like Paul making it clear where he said, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Obey. Listen to the word. Do it. Fellowship. Confess your sins. Be involved in evangelism. 4, verse 13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Because God is working in us, we will work. Because he is empowering us, we will obey. Because he is with us, we will be joyful and we will seek to do what he wants us to do. And as Paul is writing to the church in Colossae, he says, Him, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, that's a good farming word, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. He has called us to obey, he indwells us with his spirit, he empowers us so that we can obey, and if we're that consecrated heart, there will be fruit in our lives. And this happens over a lifetime as we obey and learn and confess and repent and serve and sing and all of the commandments that we see in the New Testament. Pablo Casals was one of the greatest cello players of the 20th century. And when he had reached the age of 95, he was still practicing and still working on his skills. And one day he was asked by a young reporter, Mr. Casals, you are 95 years old and the greatest cellist that ever lived. Why do you still practice six hours a day? And he said, because I think I'm making progress. That's the attitude of the Christian. We're still making progress. We work hard. We pray hard. 
We serve hard. We love hard. We confess our sins. We serve one another. We ask God to be filling us and using us because the goal is that we're making spiritual progress in our lives every day. As Jesus ended the first passage in verse 9, he said, He who has ears, let him hear. There is more here than meets the eye. This is more than just a simple lesson on farming techniques in the first century. The one who has ears to hear takes advantage of the means of grace that God has given him. Church involvement, prayer groups, Bible study groups, fellowships, opportunities for service, confession of sin, daily repentance, all of these things that God has given us. The one who has ears to hear practices those things because he loves God. He wants to love him all the more. It is that last soil that is truly a follower of Christ. It is that last soil that has truly entered the kingdom of heaven because Jesus warns again and again, we're known by the fruits in our lives. This is not talking about perfection. It's talking about progress. It's talking about growth. To quote Dr. Doriani again, we bear fruit when we hear God's word and the spirit lets it take root in us our interest then is not superficial and quick to fade. Rather, we listen, understand, and believe so that God's truth bears more fruit than anyone expected. What is the true soil of your heart today? If it's calcified, do you even desire to hear the word of God and to respond to it? If it's careless, are you willing to count the cost? Come what may to follow Christ? If it's compromised, are you willing to repent of that which is holding you back from seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? And if it's con consecrated, which is actually the true label of every true believer, are you willing to grow all the more for his glory? I plead with you this morning, as Jesus has said, he who has ears, let him hear. Consider well the condition of your heart. Eternity is at stake. Now, next week, we're going to look at the next parable where Jesus will talk about the purpose of parables. He'll talk about revelation. He'll talk about judgment. But until that time, I ask you this week to consider carefully what is said here in this first parable in Matthew 13. And let's look at some ways that we might be able to apply it to our lives. Because the heart of the matter is the heart. We will examine our hearts honestly before the Lord and confess all known sins. Because the word is the truth, when it is preached, we will receive it with open hearts. The consecrated heart recognizes its need to confess sin daily, recognizes its need to hear truth daily. And because only the truth of God endures, we will cherish it, the truth of God, above all earthly pleasures and treasures. And lastly, because growth is expected of every believer, we will obey the word and trust in the spirit to grow in Christ. Now, this is a hard word. And our temptation is to quickly try to move away from letting that hard word speak to us. I encourage you to resist that temptation and to spend time today thinking about the true condition of your heart 
and where you are before the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we are undone as we face your word because you are holy and left to ourselves we are not. But as we recognize that truth this morning, Father, we confess that Jesus is a good Savior and we are so thankful that he has saved even us. Father, I thank you that ultimately what saves us is that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and nothing that we do. But I thank you, Father, that you pursue us through your spirit. You keep pulling us and drawing us because you desire that we become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we have heard these words this morning, you have shown us what needs to change in our own lives. I know that's true for myself. And I pray that you would give us the strength to repent, to confess, to cry out to you, and to receive lavish grace and mercy from your care. So, Father, I pray that you would inflame our hearts to love you, to serve you, to obey you, to walk with you, to trust you. And so we commit ourselves into your care this morning, anew and afresh. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to believe. Give us wills to obey. Give us hands to serve you and to serve others for your glory the honor of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand as we close out our service, preparing our hearts for leaving this congregation, this sanctuary, to enter our mission field, to be prepared for whatever the world might throw at us this week. We're going to sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God.
been great to be with you this morning in the house of the Lord. You have a list of classes here in the back of your bulletin that you can participate in at 11 a.m. Opportunities for each one of us to grow in grace and knowledge. I encourage you to take advantage of those opportunities as we go out and fellowship with one another. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Let us go in peace. Have a wonderful Lord's Day. Thank you.